0: Okay, hello everyone. Um, So we're going to be carrying on in our series on 1 Corinthians. So if you'd like to turn that up, it's in the New Testament part of the church. Past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then you get to 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians is a, a letter, one of the New Testament letters written to one of the first century churches. It's written by... Um, Paul of Tarsus, the great uh, persecutor of the church who turned church planter and evangelist. Um, It's located in ancient Corinth, which was in ancient Greece, just down the road from Athens. And basically, this church was a complete mess. They didn't think of themselves as being in a mess, but in reality, they are immoral and proud and divided and bickering with each other. And what seems to have happened is that some of them seem to have written to Paul with um, some issues that they've got, probably a subset of the church, wanting Paul to adjudicate on these issues. And I guess what they're wanting them to say is, yes, they're right, and all of the other guys are wrong. Um, So they're wanting to have the excuse to say, I told you so. And Paul, um, though he does address these things in the letter, and it's it's really interesting because they're issues that we still struggle with today, um, they're not the real issue. The real issue in this church is that they need to grow up. That's, that's what needs to happen here. And so Paul's writing this letter to urge them to grow up. And we see that really clearly in our passage today, in chapter 3, starting at verse 1. I'll just read up to verse 4. What we'll do is we'll read through as we, as we talk through it. Paul says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? So Paul's saying that though they're Christians, though they have the spirit, they're acting as if they don't. They're acting not as spiritual people, but as mere men. And so Paul's saying, basically, basically they need to grow up as spiritual people. I wonder when the last time was you had someone tell you that you need to grow up. For me, it was when I was a teenager, not surprisingly. The scenario it brings to mind is me sitting in front of the television with my sister after school, arguing over who has control of the remote control. Because she wanted to watch Blue Peter, which is both boring and so immature. (laughs) And I wanted to watch Home and Away. (laughs) And my parents knew that the best way to expose me to the irony of this situation was simply to say, John, grow up. Grow up, John. If you were as mature as you thought you were, you wouldn't be arguing with your sister. You'd be letting her watch what she wanted. And you wouldn't be wanting to watch Home and Away because you'd realise that Blue Peter is far more informative than I. A... <laughs> anyway. So, um, this is it's classic, isn't it? It's the classic parental line. And it's the classic parental line you say to teenagers. You don't say it to children. You can't say to a child, stop acting like a child because they are a child. You say it to teenagers. That, that's, they're, they're, they're kind of fair game for that kind of rebuke. Because they're starting to look like adults, they're in the process of becoming adults, they're wanting people to start thinking of them as adults. And yet, in many ways, they're still um, stuck in their childish ways. And so you get this classic exchange, don't you? The teenager says to the parent, when will you start treating me like an adult? What does the parent say? When you start acting like one. You need to grow up. And that's basically exactly what Paul is saying here. I think there's an excellent case to be made for seeing the one Corinthians church, the Corinthian church, as basically a church stuck in adolescence, a church stuck as teenagers. I mean, it's tragic, isn't it? Imagine being a perpetual teenager. (laughs) Uh, So take their attitude towards Paul, for example. Mark Twain had said this funny thing. He said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. <laughs> and I, think it, like, I mean, that's a great insight into the Corinthian situation and the Corinthian attitude towards Paul. They thought they'd outgrown his message. Some were a bit embarrassed by the old man. He kept on going on about this naive and unsophisticated gospel, baby food, as they called it. And yet their attitude to Paul's message is the very sign of their immaturity. Paul says in 2, verse 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but it is not of this age. You're acting like people not of lot of people of this age, not spiritual people. We shouldn't be too hard on teenagers, and we've got to realize that it's tough being a teenager. Growing up is a hard thing to do. Um, In fact, you know, it's an interesting fact, teenagers weren't discovered until 1904. They said on Wikipedia they were discovered by a psychologist called Stanley Hall in 1904. Now, if you're a parent of teenagers, you might be slightly incredulous about that. But it kind of reflects the fact that a teenager is a kind of in-between state. You're no longer a child, but you're not yet an adult. And um, the whole experience is like some kind of identity crisis. Who am I? I'm I'm not a child. I'm not yet an adult. And psychologists say in this identity crisis, there is both a need to resist and conform simultaneously. Presumably, this is the experience of growing up. You want to kind of resist the childish ways and start conforming to adulthood. Of course, teenagers almost always get this exactly the wrong way around. They rebel against their parents and they copy one another. And this is kind of what's going on in Corinth. The church is having a kind of identity crisis that's retarding its development. It's stopping it from growing up. And like the classic teenager, it's getting exactly the wrong way around. Rather than following Paul's godly example, they're rebelling against the wisdom of the gospel and conforming to the culture of Corinth. And the extent to which they're conforming to the culture of Corinth, they're becoming deformed as Christians, as spiritual people. To put it another way, rather than the spirit of the church going out into Corinth, the spirit of Corinth had come into the church. And so, in this section, Paul's trying to address this Corinthian identity crisis. And he does it in two ways. First of all, he goes on the offensive. He attacks the spirit of Corinth that's coming into the church. And secondly, he he steps back and goes defensive. He reminds the church of their identity that they need to cherish and and, and protect. So that's what we see in this passage. Um, So... We're going to look, first of all, at Paul's offensive action, attacking the situation in Corinth. He says, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? That's first 4. You see, Corinth had this kind of celebrity culture. Now, we know all about celebrity culture, but whereas we celebrate people who marry footballers and take their clothes off on reality TV... They used to celebrate people who were really clever and give, good at giving speeches, which I know was a bit weird, but it was the olden days. They were probably less advanced back then. <laughs> and this culture had come into the church in a really big way, and it was messing them up. And so Paul seeks to kind of undermine this culture that was entering the church. So let's look at, have a look at what he says in verse 5 to 8. What, after all, is Apollos... And what is Paul? Well, Apollos and Paul are those people who are responsible for starting the church. Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants it, nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. Okay, so Paul is basically here making about five points, um, but they all serve to, to, to make one big point, which is that God deserves the praise, not man. You shouldn't be following Paul, you shouldn't be following Apollos, you should be following God. He's the one who deserves your, your commitment, your adoration. He's the one you need to celebrate. So first of all, I'm going to go through these quite quickly. First of all, Paul and Apollos and all the others they looked up to are mere servants. That's what he says. What is Paul, what is Apollos? Only servants. We've learned to think of servants as a kind of term of praise in, in the church, but that comes from Jesus and Paul. In the Corinthian days, servants were definitely mere servants. They were the lowest of the low. And that's the point Paul's making here. Secondly, they were mere servants through whom you came to believe. I.e., Paul and Apollos aren't the object of the faith, they're the messengers who brought the faith. Okay. So when you receive a letter from your lover, you don't fall in love with the postman. That's, that's what he's saying. Thirdly, God gave them the job and the skills as a gift. So verse 5, um, we're servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord had assigned to each task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. Later on in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, For who makes you different from anyone else? Who gives you some gifts and not others? And then what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, if it was a gift, why do you boast as though you did not? We've got nothing to boast about. God gives us the jobs to do. God gives us the skills we need to do. it. It's all a gift. I love that little verse. What do you have that you did not receive? That's really powerful for those of us who struggle with pride. That's a great thing to lodge in our minds. When I think to myself this afternoon, "Wow, John, you did a really good talk. People really laughed at your teenager joke." <laughs> I say, John, what did you, do? what do you, what do you have that you did not receive? Shut up! Stop boasting. Then, fourthly, and this is this is the main plank of Paul's argument, verses six to seven. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be recorded according to his own labour. So Apollos waters it, Paul plants it, but God makes it grow. If you're a parent, chances are you'll at some point have been proudly presented with your child's first science project. They'll have handed you a yoghurt pot, and you've looked inside, and you've thought, wow, great, it's some wet bit of cotton wool with some bits on it. But of course, a few days later, something amazing happens. And it is genuinely amazing. From out of these bits that your child dropped on some wet cotton wool, emerge... A growing, photosynthesizing, living organism, something that no scientist has ever been able to engineer despite centuries of trying. It's delicate, it's beautiful, phenomenally intricate, it's quite tasty when sprinkled on salads. But however ambitious a parent you are, you don't at that point nominate your child for a Nobel Prize, do you? Because, you know, your child didn't really do anything. They just sprinkled some bits on some wet cotton wool. And the seed did what God made seed to do. And Paul's saying exactly the same thing. Seriously, you don't need to praise me or Apollos. I put the bits on, Apollos made the cotton wool wet. That's it. We don't do anything special. In 2 Corinthians, he describes what he does. He says, we set forth the truth plainly, We don't try to trick or manipulate emotions, we just say it how it is. And sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the seed falls on hard ground, but sometimes something genuinely wonderful and astonishing happens. The God who said at the beginning of time, let there be light, shines his light into a dark heart. He opens blind eyes to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the one who was crucified. But that's God. That's not me and Apollos. We didn't do anything. So finally, God gives us the job. He gives us the skills to do the job. He gives us success in the job. And finally, he rewards us for the job that's amazing isn't it why on earth does god reward us for something that he gave us to do he he did it for us basically you might well ask that but the answer is simply because that is what he's like the theologians call this superabundant in grace saint augustine loved this he said god gives grace for grace he rewards us for the grace he's put in our lives he gives us gifts for our gifts this is what our God's like. This is our God. He is the one who deserves worship and praise. You know, we're made to worship. We long for someone worthy of our adoration and praise. That's why we have celebrities. That's why we have superheroes and romantic novels. We want someone worthy of our worship. Sometimes when I'm with my colleagues in the lab or in a, in a lecture... I'm a, I'm a um, scientist, I work at the university. We learn or see something that's fascinating or wonderful and we'll acknowledge it and we'll say, wow, that's, that's really cool. But it's a bit weird because it kind of hangs there, that, that sentiment. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's quite hard to describe. It's almost like an echo in, in, a, in an empty space. We see something beautiful and our hearts ache. And I think sometimes our hearts ache not because we've got nothing to be thankful for, but because we've got no one to be thankful to. And so we make God's substitutes to adore and celebrate. And that's what they did in Corinth. And that's what this church with its identity crisis was copying. And so Paul attacks this and says, no, stop it. There is only one worthy of our praise. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul then goes on the offensive against the spirit of Corinth that had come into the church, and now in the next bit he sets his mind to a more defensive task to kind of try and remind the church of their foundation first of all and their identity. He sets to remind the church of their foundation and their identity. So I'm going to read um, from verse ten. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he um, has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Okay, so I'm going to have to cover this in slightly uh, broader brushstrokes. But basically, Paul's on the defensive. He's reminding the church, first of all, of their foundation. And Paul says he laid the foundation for the church in Corinth, and the foundation is Christ. A couple of weeks ago, he reminded us, he reminded the church of the message he proclaimed. He said, I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. This was the message with which Paul established the church, Christ and him crucified. Now we've learned that Paul was under massive pressure to abandon this message. For a message more immediately appealing, something more relevant, more culturally sensitive. What can you do with a message of a God who died on a Roman cross? You can't spin the message of the cross. You can't sex it up. It's always going to sound foolish. It's not foolish. It's, it's profound, but it jars so much with stuff that's in us. One scholar, Martin Hengel, wrote a study on how crucifixion was seen in the ancient world. And he concludes by saying this. He says, for Paul and his contemporaries... The cross of Jesus was a highly offensive matter which imposed a burden on the earliest Christian missionary preaching. No wonder that the young community in Corinth sought to escape from the message of crucified Christ. When in the face of this, Paul points out to the community that his preaching of the crucified Messiah is a religious stumbling block for the Jews and madness for his Greek hearers, we're hearing in his confession... Not least the 20 year experience of the greatest Christian ministry, who would often reap no more than mockery and bitter rejection with his message of the Lord Jesus who had died a criminal's death on the tree of shame. There was massive pressure to abandon this message, this difficult message of Jesus Christ crucified. Paul's explained that, but as a good, responsible builder, he laid the only foundation possible for this building. And now the pressure that Paul would have felt is being felt by the teachers in Corinth as they build on this foundation. They can't build a new foundation. I think by that he's saying that, 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 that they are what they are. They are a church established on the cross. That's why they exist. Because Paul proclaimed the message of the cross, which is the power of God for their salvation, that's the very reason they exist. They can't get away from that, and that's who they are. But this is the temptation for them. They're trying to reinvent themselves. They're trying to, to kind of come up with something that's more sophisticated or intelligent sounding. And Paul's saying, be true to your roots. Be true to your roots. Build on the foundation that I have laid for you. What you're, what you're heading to, this kind of more sophisticated message, might seem more immediately effective or appealing but it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Do we feel that pressure to move on from the basic Christian message? Move on from the gospel? It's really easy to confuse our identity. Confuse what makes us who we are. And it can be with perfectly good stuff. In fact, it's often most likely to be with good stuff. What is it that makes Portsmouth a great church? Well, we're good at community, We're good at social outreach. And it's tempting to say, yeah, that's the main thing about us. That's really what what we're about. Some of the Christian beliefs are difficult and hard to accept, but really, we're about community and loving action. And of course, this is vital. We can't communicate Christ crucified without this. But if it becomes just about that, if we don't, with equal passion, set forth the truth plainly, then it's it's no longer about Jesus, is it? It's about us. It's about saying, look at how generous and kind we are. Look at our lovely, welcoming community. No, we've gone over this. We're back to that old chestnut again. It's about Jesus, not us. And Paul says, obscuring the cross may seem more immediately effective in the short term, but it won't last It will come to nothing. Be true to your roots. So that's the first thing he says. Our foundation is the apostolic message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there is no other foundation. Why? Because, says Paul, of what the church is. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do you not know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And this is the most exciting bit about the whole passage. The local church, us here now, is where God is. This is where God dwells. Not not now, this building, but this church as community. This is where God is. This is where God dwells by his spirit. So the temple is a rich term. In the Old Testament, it is a symbol of God's presence among his people. It was built right in the centre of Jerusalem, Jerusalem the centre of the kind of Jewish nation, God's chosen people on this earth. It is a sign to the nations that these were God's special people. But the thing about the temple in the Old Testament was it was not just a symbol of God's presence, it was also, and maybe even more so, a symbol of God's separation. You see, God doesn't need somewhere to live. God created the universe and everything in it. He doesn't need a temple to house him. But you see, God is holy. He is perfect and good and clean, and his people were emphatically not. And so the temple is a sign of the separation that exists between God and his own people. And it's profound, this separation, because God's dwelling wasn't in the temple per se. It was exclusively in the very innermost parts of this temple, in what was called the Holy of Holies. And separating the innermost part from the rest of the temple was this great thick curtain. And only once a year could a priest pass through this curtain. It's a profound sign of God's separation from even his chosen people in the Old Testament. But do you remember what happens when Mark recounts the crucifixion of Jesus? As Mark does, the crucif- as Mark kind of describes the crucifixion scene, he does something quite strange. As, as Jesus is dying on the cross, and as Jesus cries out, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Mark shifts our attention from the cross to the temple down the road in Jerusalem, and he says, "As Jesus died." The curtain, the great thick curtain of the temple, was ripped from top to bottom. And the message is clear. God took our separation from God because of our evil hearts and messed up lives onto himself and away from us. And the separation that the curtain represented was destroyed because of Jesus, because of Jesus' death. On the cross, and so you see this is why Paul cl- clung so doggedly to this message of Christ crucified, because this was what it was all about. this was what made the church what it is, the temple of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ crucified, we are no longer separated from God by our sin. God lives with us and in us by his holy Spirit, and the local church made up as it is of sinful. And messed up human beings like you and I and like those in Corinth. We can yet be called the temple of God's Holy Spirit. The people among whom God is. And Paul said we're called that because that is what we are. So, very last point. If you destroy this, God will destroy you. It's a nice point to end on, sorry about that. If you destroy this, God will destroy you. Paul says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he makes some quite similar points to those he's been making here, but to a different set of churches. The context in this church is bickering and division again, but this time the division is between Jew and Gentile, not between parties. Let me just turn to this and show you what it says. This is Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll see straight away some of the parallels as you look down the passage. So, Ephesians 2, um, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, these were Gentile believers, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Okay? That's, that's a, like the separation thing again. Okay. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay. So he's reminding this church of their identity again. And is very similar, what was divided and separated and what was dividing and separating has been destroyed. But wait a minute, what's he talking about here? Is he talking, when he says making two-one, is he talking about me and God? Me and me and God? No. Look, let's read on. He says, for he himself is our peace who has made the two-one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Um, and he says, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, so here it's about reconciling people, two groups of people, in this case Jew and Gentile. His very purpose, Paul says, is to bring people together, bring people back into community, to reconcile individuals with each other and this community being reconciled to God. And so he goes on, verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. This is a picture of a new community, isn't it? A community that's united together, with, which has been reconciled and joined together to God. Then a very similar language built on the apost- foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, And rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So, God's purpose in Christ was not just to reconcile us to God, not just to give us an opportunity for some private relationship between me and God. It was to bring together people into a new community that loves each other. So when God commands us not to quarrel and be jealous and argue with one another, but to love one another, it's not just about morals and ethics. This, loving God, loving one another, this is what it's all about. God in Christ is establishing a new community of love. Our God exists not just as some solitary God in heaven above But as a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a community that loves one another. And the gospel is about drawing us together into this community, extending that community outwards. So to divide the church is a very serious thing to do indeed. God in Christ destroyed the barrier. If anyone sets up new barriers, Paul says he will destroy him. So in helping this church out of their adolescent identity crisis, Paul attacks the culture that has entered the church that is just so out of place and reminds the church of what they're based on, the message of Christ crucified and what they are, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And these are things that are both wonderful and thus should not be shunned and awesome and thus should not be taken lightly. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus, the one who died on the cross, to reconcile us, not just to you, not just to you, to reconcile us to you and also to build a new community, a community that is part of your divine community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you so much for this vision of the church. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as Portswood cherish it and hold on to it. That we would protect our unity by working hard to love one another and not put up barriers between each other. And that we would hold on tightly, as tightly as Paul did, to the message of Christ crucified. Because this is what achieved it. This is what made it all possible. And Lord, we pray that the spirit of your church would go out into Southampton with this message of reconciliation. The message of the God who came and lived among us and died on a Roman cross to reconcile us with you and reconcile us to each other. Lord, help us grow up in this message. Help us live it, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.